You're listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com. All right, so back to your Bibles. Um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, also verses 21 and 22. So, um, today we'll tackle the problem of um, baptismal regeneration. Uh, what baptismal regeneration is, uh, is a big fancy term just that means baptism saves you. Okay. And um, this is the primary proof text for what lots of people use to say that it saves you. It may not be a big deal to you. Uh, there are one billion Catholics um, in the Roman world uh, that believe in baptismal regeneration, and they may not know that they believe in that world, but that those are the numbers. Okay, so um, and, and they're not the only ones. They're, they're met with with Protestant denominations as well. Uh, as a matter of fact, for those of you who would have come to Sovereign Hope Church, we kind of had a, like a general <coughs> discipleship night. We piggybacked in on one of their discipleship nights a couple of months ago on a Wednesday night. And I was assignment teaching there. And part of what I did was talk about sort of a range of different denominations. And that night as well, we got into some of that stuff. Um, and we talked about uh, Church of Christ. Uh, we took up a lot of denominations, but the three that are important for our text today is Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, um, and the Christian Church, which are three very distinct Denominations, but they all believe in baptismal regeneration. They all came from the same restoration movement um, hundreds of years ago here in our country. They were all formerly Presbyterians. Um, and so uh, just looking at that, um, there are, so it's not just Roman Catholicism that believes in baptismal regeneration, or that is to say that you're born again, um, or lots of Church of Christ don't like the term baptismal regeneration. They would say baptismal forgiveness. And that is when you, you basically cannot be saved without getting into the water. Now, they would be very diplomatic in the way that they would approach this to you. you know, well, you know, it's, it's okay. And, um, uh, you know, we just believe that it's, uh, you would have to be obedient to be baptized, and therefore you would have to do that to be saved. And, of course, we would agree that baptism uh, is, is strict obedience to Jesus, right? But the problem is, is that... It was Paul who told the Galatians, let anyone who adds to this gospel be accursed. The word is anathema. I mean, it's a serious issue. Uh, and we really can't be um, stapling things on to the precious gospel, right? Uh, this is the heart cry of the Reformation. Don't add anything to uh, the Reformation. And so <coughs> there are lots of texts that are used for this, you know. Uh, for those who are strict biblicists, uh, without any nuance of sort of what's going on, you just read the Bible and it says what it means and it means what it says and there's not ever any nuance, there's not ever any genre, there's not ever any metaphor, there's not any of that, then you're going to have, A, you're going to have a hard time reading the Bible, right? Um, but B, you're going to come to sort of big problems that are like this. Because I think for you... And I, the question is, is with such a large popular Christian population saying that this is true, how do we lovingly and graciously hold on to the truth 
while also honoring God with this. Does that make sense, right? And certainly we want to be gracious truth tellers. Uh, we're, we're, you know, if, if given the opportunity. Um, and and, and I, I would agree with the argument that says we want to win the person and not the argument uh, in, in, in Christian love. But at the same time, uh, you and I both know this church culture lacks a theological backbone to speak of at all. And so it's important that we come out and say, hey, this is, this is it. You know, the Bible speaks really seriously about, about this stuff. So uh, let's take a look at it again. First, uh, first Peter chapter 3. Uh, verses uh, 20 to 22. <coughs> These are the words of God. <clears throat> because they uh, did not, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. And of course, we're speaking of the aforementioned Noah. Baptism, which corresponds to this, keyword there being corresponds, corresponds to this, now saves you, right? So it doesn't say baptism now saves you. It says baptism, which now corresponds to this, saves you. And that's the key, that's the interpretive key. Uh, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So there's faith and there's faith here and there's the resurrection of the dead. So there's whole gospel right here. <coughs> Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Let's pray again. Ask God for a blessing on the reading of his word. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for, <coughs> for your great grace that you supply to us. Lord, we thank you for your word, which gives us all that we need um, God with, with the Spirit of God for life and godliness, for faith and practice. And so I pray that today it wouldn't just be a sermon uh, about uh, the doctrine of baptism, but that uh, as we preach your word, that the Spirit would make much of Jesus and that as you're lifted up in our hearts that you would draw all men to yourself. God, we seek to make much of you today to honor you uh, God, we pray that our lives would be directed by the truth, ordered by the truth, um, and uh, your authority, God, which you give us. God, so I pray that you would set on fire our people uh, with great love for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for fellow believers, for the lost, that we truly would be known by our love and our graciousness and that we would take the great news of the gospel uh, in all of its glory, in all of its mystery, uh, to people who so desperately need it. I pray that you would give us faith, hope, and love, which we lack, God, without your help. And I pray that you would give us joy. Now bless our time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> um, could you check the temperature trying to see what it is? Maybe we need to turn the air down a little hot. Maybe it's because I'm in a flannel. And <laughs> nevertheless, um, so um, you know, I, I want you. I want you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter sixteen. Mark chapter sixteen, verse fifteen and sixteen. Uh, now we, as a church, preached all the way through Mark, verse by verse, uh, for I don't know, maybe a year, or more than a year. Um, a couple of years ago, and this particular section we actually didn't preach. Um, 
uh, because we don't consider it to be part of the original first century text. We consider it an addition. Nevertheless, uh, it's in here, and uh, we need to take a look at it. Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 15 and 16. Uh, if you'll notice, there's brackets all around it, right? Um, and there's a lot of footnotes that you can read, lots of videos you can watch. Uh, but that's not for today. Um, verse 15, and he said to them, uh, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe, etc., etc. Now, uh, right, so these denominations aforementioned would take this verse alongside with our verse and they would do some theological math, right? And they would say, well, you know, 1 Peter 3 plus Mark 16 equals you have to be baptized to be saved. Um, and when you're reading it at face value and not really looking at it closely, you might, you might make that mistake. The problem is, is here's the question. Does the whole of Scripture teach this? That's the first question you have to ask yourself. Right? Does, does the whole of Scripture say you have to be baptized to be saved? Right? Is that replete throughout all, all genres, right? Old Testament, New Testament? Is it all there? And the answer is clearly no, right? And, and in every place you go, no matter where you're going, you're going to find the answers you're looking for. So, for example, let's look here in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Uh, let's look at verse 16. Whoever believes is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will will be condemned. Notice what it doesn't say. But whoever does not believe and be baptized will be condemned. It doesn't say that, does it? Right? Um, also, to take verses from John the Baptist um, uh, about repentance and baptism, etc., etc. They take Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 28, repent and be baptized. Right? And just sort of make this a case. The problem is, is that baptism is Christian obedience. We all should be baptized. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, every kid who was, you know, uh, between the ages of, of six and eight uh, recently got baptized in the church, right? So we're new converts. These puzzles are going to go down soon. When they do, I need you to laugh real hard. Um, <coughs> but anyway, this is important. It's important that they know about their baptism. Uh, they, they certainly understand it as their parents have, uh, and I uh, have walked them through it, both through the Bible and via our catechism, so that they would understand the nature of it. But it is obviously important that you understand as well. Let's just take a look at verse 20 and see what we're looking at today. Verse 20 says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So this is talking about some sort of judgment that Jesus brings to bear spiritually last week. Uh, what's the point of verse 20? Uh, I think just looking at it, um, the point of verse 20 is this. It's speaking to a minority, right? It's speaking to a minority uh, who's receiving 1 Peter in Asia Minor, and it's also uh, talking about a minority being saved, right? And you have to understand, the people of 1 Peter uh, who are in ancient, uh, ancient Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey are being obliterated for their faith. They're being persecuted socioeconomically. They're being marginalized. There's a lot of things that are going on here. Um, and, uh, you know, basically, Peter is writing and saying, hey, stay in solidarity with these people. And as sort of, as far as you go, the, the motif of all of 1 Peter is that you are a chosen exile 
and you're supposed to live as a chosen exile, right? And the overarching theme of Peter that we mention all the time is that how, the question, how does the church live um, in a hostile world uh, while being persecuted? And, and obviously, while we enjoy some freedoms here today, uh, if you're going to stand up for a biblical worldview, uh, you very well could be hit with hate speech in a hot hurry. I mean, that would happen to you um, if, if you would stay with the Bible um, consistently, right, in, in, in the things that you believe and the things that you say, even if you were to say them graciously and lovingly, the things that you say can get you in real trouble. Um, and so for you, I, I think what, how, how verse 20 meets you is that, I mean, do you, like the people of, of the days of Noah who were delivered, and this is talking about their deliverance through water, which we'll get to more later, and also like the recipients of this uh, letter from Peter, an older Peter, uh, a, a church that's been planted long ago, do you, do you recognize yourself as a part of the Christian minority? Do, do, you, do you identify with that? Or do you, like me, uh, get up on a Monday morning and go to work and clock in and, and, and you forget and you just get plugged in to the majority. Does that make sense? Like you, you're just a part of everything else and, and you don't, you, you forget who you are and we're all about knowing our identity as humanity. Know yourself, figure out yourself, be your truest self, go out and self yourself to death, etc., etc. Well, I'm not quite, and obviously we have to find all of our identity in Christ in all of the promises of God all throughout the Bible that is there. But I, I think that's first and center for us. I mean, do you recognize that you're a part of a minority? Uh, and it's, I think it's a good revisit. I mean, the whole motif of the book is exile. How, are, are you settling in? You know? Are you settling in? And here's the thing. Life is too short so many in our church have experienced hard parts of life that have screamed at all of us that life is too short. We've already learned these lessons, most of us, the hard way. We should know the brevity of life. We should know our life is just a vapor. We should know the, the reality of what it means to be quick here, here one day and gone the next, that life is precious and that you and I are a part of a minority. The question is, is how does that drive your Life and, and, and how do you walk out of here today and, and, and use the text as a prayer that says, God, make me the exile that I am. Right now, notice I didn't say, God, make me the murderer and the victim in every situation. God, deliver us from that horrible mentality, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't need any of that, but what we do need to understand is that you're different. You're called apart as a Christian to be different to make a difference, that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, you're supposed to love other people that other pe that some people won't love. And, and, and you are to uh, identify yourself in some relationships which cause you to break those relationships off when no one else will. You're, you're called to be different. And I, I, I think it's quite important. <laughs> that we understand that. And I think that the reason it's important to understand that is because of the next verse and really what this text is all about. And the text is not strictly about the practice of baptism. I think what Peter's trying to get across here is manifestly clear. He's talking about judgment, right? He's, he, he's talking about the judgment that baptism brings. That's the idea, right? 
uh, which is why he's talking about Noah. He's talking about waters of judgment, and he's uh, pointing to a judgment to come. In 2 Peter, he's going to talk about, which is not our text today, or our book today, but we're going to lead into 2 Peter after we get done with this. In several different places in 2 Peter, he talks about judgment, right? Um, so verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, and almost anticipating what we will be saying, uh, qualifies what all of that means. So let me tell you what it's not. It's not a removal of dirt, right? So uh, baptism is not a, a physical washing, right? Uh, but it is different. It is a. Uh, it says here, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but what is it? It is an appeal. The better word is pledge, right? Uh, a, a pledge of faith, right? But as a pledge of faith to God for a good conscience, some versions say from a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that's shuddering through um, the people who are being persecuted, the recipients, the, the original audience of First Peter, are afraid of death, right? I mean, the Roman Empire is reaching all the way out into Eurasia, right, in modern-day Turkey, and they're feeling it, right? And, and, and they're afraid of dying. Uh, and so this older, much wiser Peter, now theologian, comes out and says, hey, baptism is a judgment, right? Just like Noah's waters were a judgment, your baptism is a judgment. Now, here's the thing. Generally, we don't think about baptism in, in those terms. We think about baptism as life, right? We, we think about it as, you know, uh, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. We don't think about um, baptism being judgment. But when I pick up this cup, you, I don't even need to say anything else. We, we take this every week. You already know what I'm going to say before I say it. You know the imagery of this cup, don't you? You know that this cup is not just about the rescue within it. You know that the imagery of this cup is judgment. You know, right? Someone's taught you over and over and over again that cups in the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament mean judgment. Well, just like this cup represents both rescue and judgment, baptism does the same thing. Baptism... Your baptism, kiddos, when you're baptized not long ago, what it shows you is it doesn't just show you that you were saved, but it shows you what you were saved from. And it screams a really, really loud, unpopular, uncomfortable theme. The judgment of God. It is as uncosmopolitan as possible in pulpits across America or in Bible studies across America to talk about judgment. There is a certain genre of individual who says things like wrath of God, fury of God, judgment of God, revenge of God, retribution, and they're crazy. <laughs> they're just bonkers. They're nuts. They're not, you know, uh, you can't relate to them. They're off their rocker. They need to come into the 21st century So forsake the gospel, right? I mean, that's, that's what they're doing. Uh, sure. So this text 
text, just like so many texts that we preach, has the meaning that you would be a Christian that understands from whence you came or where you were going. And that is that you would um, understand the nature of judgment. And here again, we find ourselves back at the same place. That message that we constantly commission you with. That chapter 3, verse 15 in our book uh, a couple weeks ago commissioned you with. That you may not, will not, have conversations about Jesus' good news without bad news because if you don't, it's just a nice, pithy, fluffy recommendation. I recommend salvation for you. Really. I mean, if you want to live as nicely as I live, let me just recommend a new book to you, right? I've got this podcast that's going to change your life. Not that we should agree <coughs> with theologians as old as Augustine that in fact, no matter how technologically advanced we get, no matter what revolution we may go through in what country, be it the sexual revolution, the industrial revolution, the technological revolution, that God's word remains the same. And let me just get everyone's ear so that we will not mince words, that if this is not true, they should arrest us and throw us in jail for peddling such an offensive world. Talk about, talk about worldviews that are radical, that deserve retribution. This is, I mean, this is, this is nothing short of the most calculated abuse possible if it's not true. But to the contrary, we believe crazy things. We, 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 we believe all those crazy things. Jesus is the Son of God. A yoke carpenter? Yes, and also God, right? You believe in crazy things. So it's okay for you to hold in your understanding of judgment. I know that some of you, you deal with negative things in different ways. Negativity in your workplaces and negativity and, you know, things that are not fluffy and rainbowy, right? With unicorns and all that stuff. You just want to run away from it. <coughs> Some of you eat this stuff for breakfast. You love it, you know. Um, John gets up in the morning and he's like, judgment, right? I mean, he just loves it. <laughs> but, I mean, not everybody's wired like John, you know. John's off his rocker. So, um, but, 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 but that's the thing, is that naturally, because we're inclined towards comfort and security and ease, we're not, we're not going to embody and hold this stuff close to us. And listen, let me tell you the reason that you can, you can in security and assurance, hold the realities of judgment close to you. It's because it's very much a part of your story. You really neglect your life's message, what the church is referring to as your testimony. But it is, in fact, your life's message. You're, you're, you're neglecting your life's message if you don't leave within it the story of you being rescued. And so when he says baptism, which corresponds to this, what is this? It's the judgment just referred to, right? Um, not as a removal of dirt, but uh, as an appeal, a pledge of faith to God for a good conscience, and that's what we do at salvation. Or, excuse me, that's what we do at baptism. We, we get there, and as we go in the water, right, 
we pledge your love and allegiance, faith in and hope for Jesus Christ, just like we did at our profession, just like hopefully we do every day for the rest of your life. That uh, you know, this is this is it. It is a is a pledge of faith. It is faith in and love for Jesus Christ. That's the exact terminology that we use when offering our cup uh, lots of weeks, right? This this cup is open to you who have faith in and love for Jesus Christ. <coughs> that's that's it. So um, what this verse does not say is the following: baptism. Uh, which corresponds to this, now saves you um, not as a uh, removal uh, of sin, right? The text doesn't say that. The text doesn't come out and say what it's not is a removal of sin. It says this is not a removal of dirt from your body. So I I think it's important uh, to certainly get this straight. Baptism is an illustration in this verse in Christian theological studies, it's called typology. Uh, a lot of people who start Bible study get into typology. You can take typology way the wrong way. Um, but there are certain types, other illustrations in the Bible, and this is one of them, where uh, when it's talking about something, it's not necessarily meaning on the surface what you think that it's meaning. And of course, again, the hermeneutical key or the interpretive key, how you're gonna understand this if you understand, hey, Baptism uh, is there to um, show us our rescue, but it's also there uh, to show us um, judgment. So, uh, let's uh, write, write down in your notes Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And I'll read it to you as you're writing it We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So here's the thing. The, the, the glaring part of this is that you were saved from a pledge of faith. Most importantly, as the end of verse 21 says, look in your Bibles there, the resurrection of the dead, right? Um, and, and that basically you have a champion over death. These people who were scared to death, they're living in fear socioeconomically, uh, physically, certainly emotionally. They are being marginalized, if not abused, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, they don't have to be afraid anymore. They don't have to live in fear. You likewise do not have to live in fear. Uh, you do believe some really crazy things in an ancient book that are not going to make sense to a world who uh, is dead in their sin. Right? They're, they're of a corrupt mind and conscience. Titus chapter one verse fifteen. But Hey, you, you don't have to live in fear because you have a conqueror, right? Every day for the rest of your life, you don't have to be afraid of death. You certainly don't have to be afraid of spiritual death, but you don't even have to be afraid of physical death. The day that you go and die, Jesus is going to hold your hand, and who's tucking you in that night? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He has defeated every part of death that you have to uh, worry about. Uh, last but not least here is uh, verse 22, if you're taking notes, Jesus and the victory of God. So verse 21 is baptism is a picture of judgment. Verse 20 is Christians should take heart. So verse 20, Christians should take heart. Uh, verse 21, baptism is a picture of judgment. Verse 21, baptism is a picture of judgment. And now verse 22, 
Jesus and the victory of God. <coughs> Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is, uh, what it's doing is it's championing God's authority. That's what it's doing. It's, it's championing his position. It's saying after the resurrection what happened. You and I believe in the ascension. I believe that the ascension is, uh, what, what is the ascension is Q51 in the New City Catechism, which we go through. And it talks about the authority and the victory of God. Him going to the right hand of God, right? And understanding uh, what that victory means, that he has ultimate authority and power. Um, and, and, and when I read these verses, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. This is the important verse. Having been subjected to him. And this directly corresponds, all, all, all the things that have come up against him directly corresponds with your uh, call to be subject to every human institution, right? Uh, marriage, your workplace, the law, etc. We talked about this for actually a long time. The reason that you, you subject yourself, right? Uh, is first of all, Jesus subjected himself, but the reason that you can is because all of those things, right, have already subjected themselves to Christ. That is so important. That is, a, that is a theological thing that you can take and put in your pocket, right? How do I subject myself at work um, when I just don't want to? Uh, how do I subject myself in human institutions? Because everything in this world has been subjected to Jesus, and he himself subjected himself to the wrath of God. I should follow in his footsteps. That's where I should go. This should be one of your things, guys, if I can get your attention to the guys. Uh, just that, that verse that says you love your wife like Christ loves the church, it's that bit of theology that you never, ever, ever take out of your pocket because it is what keeps you grounded. You don't love your wife because, you know, it, it, it's tradition to do so, and your parents did it, or, or, or you, you, you fear shame. You do it because the Bible says to do it like God loved the church. Likewise, you don't subject yourselves at work for any other reason than those that are theological in nature, right? Uh, anything else is just a, a nice inspirational speech that is going to be gone quickly, right? You root your reality in, in, um, in truth, in a worldview, in a manifesto that is the Bible. So when I, when I see this, what I see is not only authority, but I see... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, which we preached a couple of weeks ago, who can be against us? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, if you're taking notes. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Or, as Romans chapter 8, verse 31 uh, says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But what I want you to do is you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do. Turn to Romans chapter 8, okay? Romans chapter 8, we're going to read... Verses 31 all the way to verse 39. Because what's so wonderful about this is it, it encaps these verses encapsulate uh, not only what Peter is saying here about uh, who can be against us, but it's also talking about authority, and it's also talking about angels, uh, demons, powers, anything that may uh, that we may be afraid of. 
There, oh, there it is. Indeed. Okay, so Romans chapter um, 8. If your pastor was David Platt, he would just memorize this part because Platt's memorized Romans, praise God, but I have not, so in my Bible. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Here we go. Uh, these are the words of God. What then shall we say to these things? Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, get this, sounds just like 1 Peter 3, 22. For I'm sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, when, when verse 22 starts talking about what you've been delivered from and that baptism is a picture of judgment, but then on top of that, it just doesn't end with judgment. It ends with the victory of God and with, with his authority. I think that, that that's what you've got to walk out of here with today. right? You've got to walk out of here with, in judgment, remembering that your story, your life's message is one where Judgment and bad news is a part of who you are, but also God's authority. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I want to try to make this as plain to you as I possibly can, and I can only pray as your pastor and your friend that God really sinks this down into your soul. <coughs> because I don't think that authority is just a good talking point. I think authority actually changes the way that we do things. He does. I mean, we could go and reread re the Gospel of Mark, which is all about authority. It's all about presenting Jesus to the Son of God. But here's the thing. Every single day of your life, you deal with authority. I bet at work you return emails faster from your boss's boss than you do from anybody else, don't you? Don't you? Oh, my boss's boss just emailed me. But why do you do that? One word, authority. That's the one. Some of you clam up in authority, in any kind of authority, at all, right? <coughs> I am one of those people. Uh, my wife and I have countless stories to tell. We get to places where, the, you know, uh, so for example, we're crossing the border over into Canada uh, to go to Prince Edward Island with my brother. We came up to the thing, and I, I just... When I come up to border control or anyone who's an actual, I just clam up. I'm just like, immediately. <laughs> and then we drive up and we're heading into New Brunswick out of Maine and they say, sir, is everything okay? You know, <laughs> We have our daughter in the back and she's just kind of looking like this. And I, I actually had a machete right here uh, down, which I don't know why I have a machete. He's <laughs> like, is everything okay today? I'm like, yeah, everything's great. Wonderful, right? And, and I just acted 
not myself at all. Like I've just lost all my mental faculty. My voice pitch changes. I feel different inside. Because I'm like, oh, these people are going to just imprison my entire family right now. <laughs> all that is to say, we can get really nonsensical and ridiculous when we get around. If you don't believe you can ask Cindy, she'll tell you how ridiculous I am. But here's the thing. This, this, this story sort of serves to tell that actually we do, we, we do operate in our lives out of authority in different ways. Those emails that you sort of quickly look at or whatever it is, anything. God orders our lives through his word. There is no higher authority that you and I have. The reason that God has called you not to fear anything else but him is for good reasons, really. It's because he's put every other thing under his foot. We don't have a big view of God. My, my kids who come into my classroom year after year after year after year, when I ask them about the nature of hell, they, they keep telling me literally 75% of the children in a Christian school believes that Satan is in charge of punishing people in hell. Their, their view of God is about this big. They have no idea that God has literally subjected everything under his foot. They, they don't get it. They have this sort of Saturday Night Live cultural theology, and it's just nauseating. Wait, nobody's telling them the truth anyway, right? So, so it, it's important that, that, that you live your life and, and you hear the Bible when it says in the Old Testament, let God be your fear. Let God be your dread and also your treasure. Hey, that, 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 that's, that's it. And here's the thing, what's so ironic about that is how many times in chapter one in, in, in 1 Peter did it say, fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God. Yeah, so you're, you're gonna have to take Take those things, right? Part of the Christian worldview is understanding the role of judgment in our life's message. This is the takeaway, by the way, right? The, the role of judgment in our life's message, and then also understanding how authority works in our everyday life. That when Jesus says in Romans chapter 14, verse 11, and in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, every single knee is going to bow then that authority should bring such comfort to you. Listen, you want to know what the warm blanket of God's grace is over my life and my wife and my children? It's the sovereignty of God. That's the warm blanket over our lives. We trust in a God who's an authority. We do. We do. <coughs> um, so, uh, friends, I, I hope this has encouraged you. I, you know, I, I, uh, let, me, let me read this to you. Last part. Jonathan Edwards preached the same sermon in the uh, mid-1750s, uh, and he ended his sermon uh, with, uh, I think it's a great way to end it, um, as just a call for seeking the Lord. Uh, it's in uh, Isaiah chapter 55, uh, verse 6 and 7. If you want to write that down, you can. Um, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. This is how Edwards, who was without argument the greatest American theologian of American church history. Um, and, and anybody would agree with you that. It doesn't matter if they're uh, congregationalist or reformed or not. Um, 
This is what he read in Isaiah 55 at the end of his sermon on judgment out of the same text in, in 1 Peter 3. Seek the Lord while he might be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Uh, so let me, let me encourage you to the end of making your life's message one that shows your life as a trophy of grace and calls others <clears throat> to faith and love for Jesus Christ. We're going to take the Lord's table. Uh, Christian, can I ask you and Aaron to go be comfortable to the Lord's table today? Don't do that. We're going to pray on that. We'll take the table. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for your grace that you give to us. Thank you for this day uh, that you have made. God, help us to rejoice and be glad in it. Um, thank you for your word. God, with <coughs> messages um, like judgment and authority, surely you have to do great transformative work in our hearts uh, in order to do what your word has come to do. And that is not to return void from us. So I pray that it would convict and challenge, but at the same time that uh, as we see judgment, that we would see the, the big rescue on the other side of, of seeing such judgment, that we would see incredible grace and mercy uh, on the other side of retribution and what is perfect justice. And so God, we thank you for loving us and giving us every day um, what we don't deserve, and that's grace, and for you not giving us what we do deserve in your great mercy. God, I pray that, that we would be equipped with the whole gospel as we seek to tell other people about God's goodness and rescue in our lives, and that we would live each and every day uh, under the assumption that you, God, are a God of great authority and control, and that while difficult, um, all that comes to us, Lord, though it's so hard, comes to us through your hand in, in authority. So God, help us to live in this fallen world with our hope only in you. This broken, beat up, cursed, but yet beautiful world. Help us to love you, God. Help us to have faith, hope, and love. Thank you for this, this command to take the table and help us to see the beauty, God, of your rescue in it. Thank you for laying down your life for us and enduring, um, God, our great punishment and, and, and the wrath of God. We take it, Lord, humbly. We pray these things in Christ's good name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, or hear more like this, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com.